My name is Marie White, and I'd like to welcome you to the White Bikini. And joining me today is my co-host, Nicholas Banson. How are you, Nicholas? I'm doing very well, Marie. I'm really excited to talk about LBJ today, one of my favorite presidents. Mine too. And probably about a, two months ago, I did notice on CNN that it popped up that they had a four-hour documentary regarding LBJ's presidency. And it reignited my interest in all things LBJ. And I binge watched it yesterday and it's a must see. I think LBJ, perhaps second only to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was one of the more meaningful presidents of the 20th century. A hundred percent agree. And I, ha I had read a lot of books about Lyndon Johnson prior to the documentary, but this documentary, maybe because it was more updated and also a lot of things have been able to be released in the last 10 years about his presidency that you have a better understanding and a fuller picture behind the fog of war, which was Vietnam. Yes, and I'm sure we're probably going to be spending a lot of time discussing Vietnam, but unfortunately, by the end, it became defined by Vietnam, and rightfully so. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time some 38 minutes ago. After Kennedy's assassination, Johnson really was, I hate to use the word, but I'm gonna use it, a lame duck vice president. He really was brought in to win the 1960 election as they needed to win the Southern states. Yeah. And I think he, I think he expected to have a more, more fulfilling vice presidency, but he really became sidelined because they just really wanted his presence to win. They did not want his input. No, I think if I remember my history correct, uh, JFK's father, um, the patriarch Kennedy, had this idea that, uh, I think he had floated the idea that Johnson would pick Kennedy as his running mate because the feeling was Johnson was a seasoned politician. Kennedy was this uh, up and coming, rising star in the Democratic Party. And it would make sense to link the South and the North. But as it turned out, Kennedy's star shone a little bit brighter than Johnson. And another little interesting bit of trivia, Robert Kennedy, JFK's brother, resented, and I don't think ever truly forgave Johnson for rebuffing the idea of taking his brother as his running mate. And so it's a little bit of a nuance, a little bit of a personal intrigue between those two seminal figures of the 1960s. And they, the two men couldn't have been different. LBJ was known to be very outspoken. I hate to use the word because I don't think it's fair to him, but a little more crude or unpolished. I, I think that's definitely the consensus around the halls of Washington is that Johnson was not the refined politician. And quite frankly, my impression of his presidency, he didn't really care much for the pomp and circumstance of the Oval Office. He was a rancher. He was a cowboy. He did not care for the, the pleasantries of state dinners. Um, he spoke in a very gruff and unrefined way. But, uh, you know, I, I hope that we can speak to how his attitude and his persona led to one of the most amazing pieces of legislative history in American society. And on the other hand, Kennedy was refined, very calm, very thoughtful. 
So I think the two opposites in the beginning worked well because they needed that civil face, but they needed Johnson behind the scenes to push things through. Yes, and I think it worked. It actually worked well. I mean, Johnson, one of his tasks as vice president was to shepherd the moon program, the Apollo program, at least uh, the various stages from uh, Mercury to Gemini to Apollo uh, under Kennedy's moonshot program. And the success of the Apollo program was in large part due to LBJ's probing and prodding and just getting the wheels turning because Congress is not exactly known for being a place of expediency and efficiency. And after, I mean, obviously Kennedy was brought to Texas as it was a state where LBJ was from. And after the assassination, he was completely overwhelmed and shocked by Kennedy's passing. And in this documentary, it does show him with Lady Bird after he came back to the to Washington saying that it basically pray for me because we have never seen in the 20th century anything like this. No, I think what the last president to be assassinated before uh, JFK may have been Garfield, you know, certainly wasn't witnessed on live television broadcasts all over the United States and all over the world. It was a gruesome sight. Johnson had to rise to the occasion and not only carry the mantle of the assassinated JFK, but he had a vision for America that he wanted to enact. I think there were, his, his legislative record, as I alluded to before, is remarkable. I think it's something like 84 for 87. He submitted 87 pieces of legislation to Congress and he wound up signing 84 of them. That's a 96% efficiency rate. Don't think that there's a president out there that comes close to that level of accomplishment. I mean, Congress can barely agree on what day of the week it is. Agreed. And moving to after the Kennedy assassination and what, as I said, I'd like to umbrella under the Great Society, we're going to jump ahead, though I do think Kennedy's assassination is important in the legacy. Today, I want to focus on LBJ as the president, not his connection to Kennedy. No, I, I think, and also I think there is enough history, there's enough substance to discuss LBJ as president. Uh, but I, I think as we did appropriately, we we had to make the connection to his historical significance under President Kennedy. So then we're going to go to the what I'm going to umbrella under the Great Society, which starts with the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Yeah, uh, one of the most important pieces of legislation in the United States. I think, you know, with the success of Brown v. Board of Education in the 1950s, the Civil Rights Act that was essentially just kind of listing its way in Congress prior to Kennedy's death. With Kennedy's death, Johnson felt this, I think he felt a sense of ownership that as a part of Kennedy's legacy and also as a fulfillment of his own values that the Civil Rights Act had to be passed. And this is where we started to see Johnson as just a phenomenal negotiator. Historians talk about Johnson getting up into people's faces, literally nose to nose. He would cajole, he would call people's wives, he'd call legislators' wives and friends. He would per persuade them, he would never allow no to be the answer. But there was something charming about him. And as much as he was a gruff ranch hand cowboy, 
from Texas. Many people remember that period of Johnson's cajoling as being somewhat charming. I think America is better for what he was able to accomplish. Without Johnson and the accomplishments of the 1960s, America, in terms of social evolution, I think would be 50, 60 years behind where we are today. And for people who look like me, that is absolutely horrifying. That is, that is a nightmare that we fear day to day, that not only what could have been, but that there are forces in American society that are actively pursuing legislative means, social means to revert to those pre-1964 Civil Rights Act years. And I think with the Civil Rights Act, along with Kennedy's assassination being televised, people were seeing on television the racism that was taking place in the country or before you could kind of bury your head. But now even the greatest generation was seeing it on their television and knew that something had to be done. It absolutely had to be done because America is very comfortable with turning a blind eye to racism and oppression. You know, I, I think we've mentioned this many times that over successive generations, there's a kind of racism that is justified. And in the South, it was the idea that, of course, it's entirely inappropriate to have a black man voting and making democratic decisions that affects the lives of white people. Of course, that's entirely inappropriate. So it was just assumed, it was presumed to be just a fundamental miscarriage of social justice, if you will, for that time. Uh, in the North, it was out of sight, out of mind. I think there was perhaps a little bit more sympathy towards African-Americans uh, in the South, as long as they stayed in the South and they did move into white neighborhoods in the North. And so there, there is, there has been this neglect that people were willing to look the other way because the people in power benefited from the status quo. So what Johnson was able to accomplish was absolutely transformative. And then the next bill that was so crucial is the voting rights. Yeah, you can't be a citizen if you can't vote. And with the abolition of the poll tax, it made it so that one of the last barriers one of the last barriers keeping African-Americans from voting and participating as equal members of American democracy was abolished. And it's interesting, if we can jump forward for a second, the very idea that I alluded to initially that there are forces in American society that are essentially trying to undo what Johnson was able to accomplish over 60 years ago, that is scary. We currently have a Supreme Court that is weakening voting rights. We have a Supreme Court that will perhaps deny women national standard to privacy with respect to abortion. We just see an active force that's dismantling many of the transformative accomplishments of the Johnson era. And the one thing with the voting rights, the 64, 65, 66 era before Vietnam really took over, and he felt strongly that we're sending boys to war to fight for us. They aren't even allowed to vote. Yeah, and I think that was a critical part of it, too. I, I, I think it was hard to make that argument um, in the same way that I think it was hard to make the argument that you could justify what was taking place in the South with vis-a-vis -vis the Civil Rights Act, um, the, the segregation, uh, whites only. The idea that we're sending young men off to war 
without the ability to vote, without the ability to vote, uh, was was a national disgrace. And most of the boys that were going off to Vietnam were majority were African American, and Both also people from a less influential background. speaks to that entire hypocrisy of American society that you essentially you have an exploitation of an underclass a generation before uh, or actually a century before you had slavery uh, subsequent to that you had the Jim, Jim Crow era of exploitation and by the time it reached the 1960s it was another form of exploitation where we're using uh, African Americans Hispanics and poor white men boys, if you will, to fight America's war so that the previous class could fulfill their political aims. And then, of course, we go to, which is still important today, Medicare. Medicare and Medicaid, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, as, a, as an old college professor sort of succinctly remind, reminded me, it was care for the elderly and aid for the poor as a quick uh, mnemonic, if you will, to help distinguish the two. But Johnson recognized the need, the immediate need for improving on the gains of FDR's New Deal. And he recognized the need for the poor, for elderly Americans to have greater access to health care, because if you don't have health, you have nothing. And a lot of Republicans and in this documentary, there was an interview with Ronald Reagan. Ironically, we've discussed the importance of his presidency that a lot of Republicans thought this was the beginning of the end of the capitalist era in America. Yes, uh, there's definitely some truth to that. We we can absolutely see that in the Reagan revolution. The Reagan revolution was in huge, in large part, a rejection of the Kennedy LBJ era and the, the transformation that took place in American society from the Civil Rights Act to the Voting Rights Act to Medicare, to uh, the environmental protections that great society brought to America, Reagan's success came about because of LBJ's Great Society. In in some ways, and I think there's actually a parallel in more recent American history, Trump's success is in large part due to the backlash or quote unquote blacklash to Obama's presidency. I 100% agree. And while I was watching this documentary, without getting into obviously the current conflict we find ourselves in, 
nothing's really changed. It's just a cycle that just keeps repeating itself just with a different president and a different face and a different set of problems. And it was a little discouraging when I watched it. I thought nothing's really changed. No, the pendulum swings back and forth. Uh, we're a divided society, as I think as most democracies are. There are some fundamental disagreements. I don't necessarily think someone is racist because they're Republican, but when the other side wins, you don't get to influence society. So you will look the other way, you will countenance efforts to make it more difficult for African-Americans, uh, people of color who predominantly vote Democratic to vote. And so there is a, a level of complicity that takes place throughout America. I don't, I, I don't think we should necessarily get into false dichotomies or simple solutions to explain this to ourselves. But I think it's important to recognize that there is a pendulum that swings back and forth. And one part of American society wants to take things back to what they think was the better aspect of American society. And you have another part that totally believes in progress and improving on what was and making what what's to come better for everyone. And there's that tension that that has been there since the very beginning. There was many interviews in the documentary, and actually many of them were contemporaries of Martin Luther King. And one quote that stuck with me, he said that Johnson was not a racist and he was the right man for the job because he was a white Southerner and he was exposed to prejudice growing up from his experience in Texas. And I found that really fascinating. I think I think that's absolutely the case. I think I mentioned before that Johnson was a master negotiator. And I think that's how we were able to achieve the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, because he was a white man from Texas. He could allay the fears because why would why would someone who is not an avowed racist reject the Voting Rights Act. My speculation is that there's a place of fear, there's a place of confusion, there's a place of concern that they will be surrendering their power to people who don't deserve it, people who are not qualified to wield power. And it, it will put their lives, put the lives of their loved ones in danger. And I think what Johnson was able to do was assuage those fears and say, it's okay guys, it's fine. It's the right thing to do. The sky's not gonna fall. You'll be able to live your lives. You'll be able to love your children. You'll be able to pursue your dreams. And what we're doing is the right thing to do. And I think what Johnson was able to do is just remind many of those Southerners what they believed in their hearts and that there's right and wrong, there's good and bad. And I think he was able to comfort them and make and help them to feel that it was the right thing to do from a practical standpoint, but also from a moral standpoint. And that was part of the genius of Johnson. And I'm sure he probably threatened them along the way too. Let's not elevate the man to sainthood. Agreed. And the documentary is broken up in different phases. And the Great Society phase ended with an interview with Richard Nixon saying that LBJ was three of the most important presidents of the 20th century, being Teddy Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Linda Bain Johnson with the legislation they were able to get through. And it really startled me to hear that from Richard Nixon. And then it just really added to my enforcement of LBJ does matter. And he changed the face of the 20th century in the mid 60s. The resonance with the 21st century is 
the Trump era. Uh, you, you know, Trump's slogan was make America great again. And the question was often asked, when was America great? When, when do we want to go back to? And to my mind, many of his supporters, they want to go back to the pre-LBJ era. That's the only time in American history where it would make sense. Those people that are often were often at his rallies, it would be a part of their experience because they'll be old enough to remember that time. And they would be able to remember that time when they felt a sense of dominance, they had a sense of comfort, they didn't have to negotiate power, and things seemed simpler back then. And in part, they were simpler back then because people now that are attending Trump rallies were children back then. So of course, you want to go to the halcyon days of childhood. You want to go to the idyllic setting of your youth. It does make sense. And I think it would be a mistake not to understand this aspect of this current cycle of American psychology. Agreed. It really did all start with Lyndon Johnson. And as you said, the pendulum just goes back and forth. And in hoping in terms of the great society that at one point we're able to stay stabilize it, to stay one place and always moving forward. I don't think that's the way it works. I think the way these things work, gradual swing of the pendulum, and then something breaks. There will be some kind of revolution because America post-World War II to, I would say the assassination of JFK, the pendulum swung back and forth. There was a, there was a steady cadence to the political ebb and flows of American society. And then in the 1960s, mid 1960s, it just exploded. Vietnam, the civil rights movement, the assassination of Ken Kennedy, the cultural forces taking place in the world, Beatlemania, the rise of the counterculture movement. So yes, there's a steady cadence from one period to the next until there's not. And then there's something ultimately transformative. The relevance today is that I think we might be on the cusp of some major transformation. I think if the Supreme Court knocks down the right to abortion rights as a national right and becomes a state right, I think as the Supreme Court continues to whittle away at Voting Rights Act, at the Voting Rights Protection, as it's basically blown a hole right to the heart of it, if we are back to the place where states can ban contraception, this is where we're coming from. And this is what Johnson shepherded America through. Johnson administration shepherded America through many of the changes as a progressive society we take for granted. Johnson was in part responsible for that through direct legislation or through the courts. Let's not forget, Johnson put Thurgood Marshall, an African-American man, on the Supreme Court in the 1960s. There, there are some interesting and, and uh, important changes that we have to watch for. And I think, as I said from the top of the show, is that Johnson is important. Johnson's critical. And one of the people that was interviewed for the documentary did say, and I do believe that Johnson actually allowed for Barack Obama to be voted as the first African-American president. It was the first serious conversation we had about race and it elevated everything to another level. There's so many precursors to Obama. You don't have an Obama without Johnson. You don't have an Obama without, of course, the Voting Rights Act. You don't have Obama without the Civil Rights Act because I truly believe without those pieces of legislation, if we had a policy, if, if we had reversed, if we had reversed Reagan or we reversed Nixon, those presidents had the Johnson years 
America, in terms of the protections for people like me, I truly believe would be decades, many, many decades behind. Let's not forget the Civil the Civil War ended in 1865, and for a tiny period in during Reconstruction, African Americans had access to the greater society in terms of voting and participating in the democratic process and owning property and being able to determine their lives. And then that went away for a hundred years, not until the 19th, not until 1964-65 do we get back to a place where we start to fulfill the ideals of the Declaration of Independence. So I firmly believe, and this is something I'm quite passionate about, that if, if we had a President Reagan, if we had a President Nixon instead of a Johnson, if we had even a Goldwater, um, you know, if we go back to the, the the campaign of 1964, if we had those people in place, and I'm not necessarily I'm not necessarily saying that they're 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 just outright racist. I think they were okay with the way things were. They didn't want to rock the boat. They didn't want to make people in the South, and let's not forget people in the North upset. So, I I absolutely appreciate Johnson uh, beyond words sometimes. And I think we were lucky that it happened when it did, because by 1966-1967, we were, which I'm going to use the term, under a fog of war for a good decade, and no one would have had the energy to go back to those type of rights. Now, there's a time and a place in American history where certain things can happen, where there's fertile ground for social, political change. And once that window closes, it's closed and it's gone. It may come back again, but it won't return for who knows when. So the 1960s under Kennedy and under LBJ, there were fertile ground for a lot of the progressive ideals that we just take for granted in American society. The environmental protections that we uh, take for granted, national highway safety transportation that we take for granted, the Equal Employment Act. So many things that we just assume these are the benchmarks of a healthy democracy, a healthy, modern, progressive society. Johnson made that happen. And then to, to transition from the great society, we can't talk about Johnson without talking about Vietnam. And this is where it all fell apart. something happening here what it is ain't exactly clear there's a man with a gun over there telling me i got to beware i think it's time we stop children what's that sound everybody look what's going being drawn nobody's right if everybody's wrong young people speaking their minds are getting so much resistance from behind time we stop hey what's that sound everybody look what's going Field day for the heat. I found 
thousand people in the street Singing songs and they carry inside Mostly say hooray for our side It's time we stop, hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going What are your thoughts? How do you think this whole episode of American history made a left turn? I believe that during this, the area, era of the Great Society, another point of reference the documentary helped me understand was his relationship with Martin Luther King. And it was a very close relationship. It was a very positive relationship. And Martin Luther King was taken back with what Johnson was able to get done because they also realized that it did come from a good place. They had their doubts about John F. Kennedy, not that he was a racist, but he did not have the background to deal with people from many different races and bring them together. No, I, I think that's absolutely the case. I think Johnson's pedigree, Johnson's history and his experience coming from the South made it possible uh, to achieve many of the goals that Martin Luther King shared. I. Here's another idea of what could have been. Had Johnson failed, we may have entered another period of civil war. And I know it's an extreme idea to posit, but consider for a second what was taking place in urban America with the riots that took place in the mid 1960s. You had a generation of African-Americans who had come back from World War II and Korea, who had seen what the world is capable of being. They demanded more of their society. They demanded more of their country. And I think there was the potential for massive urban and massive national chaos. You told these veterans and their families and their children and their sons and their brothers that, hey, hey, that thing you did in Germany, that thing you did in Europe, that thing you did in the Pacific, uh, that thing you did in Korea, hey, thanks for that, bud, but you know, you need to get back to the you need to get to the back of the bus. That was just not gonna happen. So America could have torn itself apart in the 1960s. As tumultuous as the 60s were, I think it could have been even more explosive. I agree. And I do think like every decade has its early couple years, what I'm gonna call the honeymoon period, whether it be the 50s, the end of World War II, kind of living that happy bubble again in the 60s. But I do believe by 65 and 66, after the legislative, legislative era of LBJ was at its peak, Vietnam could not be ignored anymore. Yeah, that's and, 65, right? 1965, that's when the bombings began. And Johnson postponed any conversation about Vietnam until he couldn't. And he was of the generation because he had served in World War II of the domino effect of the war, though he was very conflicted. He did keep Kennedy's, Kennedy's advisors on in the mid 60s, and they were all from the generation in respect to them. They did fight in World War II, so they did believe in the domino effect. But as the war drug on, Ken Kennedy advisors and Johnson's also started to realize at that point, it really wasn't a war that could be won. <laughs> Yeah, what is it good for? I 
me. That's it. That's the real shame of the Vietnam War. The, the lives lost, the nearly 60,000 American soldiers who died, the million, million and a half, two million Vietnamese, North and South, who died as a consequence of that war, the destruction of the massive destruction of the environment. Let's not forget that, you know, this is beyond the scope of this discussion that the war expanded into Laos and Cambodia. It was an absolutely devastating experience for people of Southeast Asia. As much as America lost their sons, you know what? The corner store was still open. You could go shopping, you could go to the movies. It was a war that was a world away. And so the experience is going to be different than the people who have B-52s flying over their heads. So as I said, you know, the, the bombings began in 1965. And I think certainly by 66, 67, if you look at some of the historical memoirs about McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, one of the longest serving secretaries of defense in the United States history, they knew this was a war they couldn't win unless they went nuclear. And that was just not an option. So there is there's a tragedy within a tragedy within a tragedy regarding the consequences of expanding the war after the Gulf of Tonkin incident, the bombing started, that transformed America and I think destroyed someone who would have been one of the absolute greatest, I'm talking Mount Rushmore, great presidents uh, had the Vietnam War not exploded in his lap. Because let, let's be honest, Vietnam goes back to the 1950s. It goes back to Truman. I say it goes back to as early as 1954. 10 years later, 11 years later, 1965, that festering wound in Southeast Asia exploded. And as the war drug on to 66, 67, it became apparent to Martin Luther King Jr. And he did find a record, someone had forwarded information that more African-American males were being killed in the war than white American males. And he was furious and it put a great divide into his relationship with LBJ. And I don't think they ever spoke again. The army did not have enough able-bodied men to fight in Vietnam, because after the period of deferment, you were essentially left with, well, let's put it this way. Do you remember the movie Forrest Gump? Yes. That was not a myth. There was an actual recruiting effort made by the United States Department of Defense to recruit individuals who, how can I put this sensitively? If they could fire a rifle in the right direction, that was good enough because they knew they were fighting a war that they couldn't win, and their only solution was to throw bodies at it. So Forrest Gump was not was a little bit of historic fiction, but it was actually based on a practice of recruiting people who had low IQs, um, who perhaps didn't quite understand the consequences of 
engaging in, in combat. And of course, there was the disregard for black lives. You know, we're still talking about it today that poor black men were essentially directed into the army because that was perhaps their only value in society. And also the generation of American males that were driving the campaign into Vietnam to elevate General Westmoreland, McNamara, they were not the same people that had to send their sons to this combat. Their children were in college, they were able to defer, but people with less fortunate financial and social status were the ones that were fighting, and that infuriated Martin Luther King. Absolutely. We saw that with Bill Clinton. We saw that with Donald Trump. Um, it was part of what caused society to erupt because young people recognized the injustice. It was stark and clear. Uh, people of a certain generation, people of a certain socioeconomic status saw that as just a necessary thing to do. And I will just say this as an aside. It's one of the reasons why I respect the late uh, John McCain, because John McCain was truly a fortunate son. John McCain was captured in Vietnam, shot down over North Vietnam on a bombing run. He could have been released early, but he did not want to jump the line. And during his time at the infamous Hanoi Hilton, he was brutally tortured. I had an unfortunate experience with someone where they were making fun of his inability to move his arms in a very in a natural way. And I, I immediately snapped at the person. I said, do you know why he can't move his arms like that? And they weren't aware. And so I told them, John McCain cannot move his arms like that because he was hung by his arms for so long that the muscles and nerves that surround his shoulders were destroyed. And he did that so that his fellow combatants, his fellow um, servicemen uh, could go home before he did. Perhaps maybe we can do a podcast about John McCain, but I thought this was uh, an important uh, inclusion. I do believe that John McCain was the less, is the last American hero. Yeah, I, I, I firmly believe that. Uh, politically, um, you know, I, I, I certainly buy 2008 John McCain version, um, he became a bit of a stranger to me, but certainly the 2000 version of John McCain had John McCain won instead of uh, George W. Bush. I, I think maybe I could have stomached it. Let's face it, perhaps it's one of those uh, uh, inflection points without the election of George W. Bush and the disaster that he wrought upon the country. There were probably also would not have been a Barack Obama. So who knows, history is fickle. Now, 1968 is when the war was elevating in Vietnam. It was a Tet Offensive. Everything was leading up to the point of panic is when Johnson realized that he had made a mistake elevating and giving General Westmoreland those 150,000 troops. Because at that point, once you did that, you couldn't pull out. That's a problem that if we can make a parallel to what's going on right now in Ukraine, I think that is exactly what Joe Biden is trying to avoid. Joe Biden is trying to avoid putting the United States in a situation where he commits America to a series of actions from which they cannot extricate themselves to make it somewhat relevant. But, you know, back to the topic at hand, there is there was that commitment that maximum deployment. It was over half million American troops and it was never enough. And it would never have been enough because it was a war that America could not win. You had the North of you had the North Vietnamese Army that was willing 
to sustain 10 to 1 kill ratios. Ho Chi Minh famously said, you know, I'm willing, we're willing to have 10 of us die to take one of you out. You had the Viet Cong and you also had the exploitation of sympathetic uh, South Vietnamese. The longer these wars go on, the more the, you know, the hero becomes the villain. And I think, you know, with the My Lai Massacre, it revealed, I, I believe by 68, which wasn't revealed until 69, even the South Vietnamese were becoming disenchanted with what America was trying to accomplish in their country. And 68 is the turning point, I believe, for our country and for Lyndon Johnson's presidency. And 1968 is quoted as being the most consequential year of the 20th century. And I happen to agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you could make a, an argument that uh, December 7th, 1941, the attack on Pearl Harbor was consequential. But outside of that, yes, 68 was just, it's amazing the country just absolutely didn't rip itself apart during 68. And then you have the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, in April. The assassination of Bobby Kennedy in June. Yeah, even before that, we you know, you had other assassinations, you know, Medgar Evers, Leading up to that, you had uh, Mississippi burning. So it was this crescendo that, as you aptly spoke to, that exploded in 68. And it is in that time that Johnson, they say slowly, but it probably happens a little quicker after the death of Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy's assassination, that he started to fall into a deep depression. And when he would be leaving the White House during this era, People were outside chanting, LBJ, how many boys have you killed today? Yes. And I think for a, a man who is committed to progress, who has had the sensitivity and the intelligence to recognize suffering in those less fortunate, I'm sure that was just not a token statement that he just brushed off. I think he was keenly aware of the devastation taking place in South Vietnam and even the devastation taking place on U.S. Uh, college campuses. It became a tidal wave of things that he realized he could not get ahead of. And I do believe that I think he also realized his time as being relevant was gone. The country had moved on, certainly uh, 64 to 68. There might as well be uh, an entire 20-year difference. It was such a transformational experience for Americans that I think you're right. I like the way you put that. His time had passed and the most consequential decision of his presidency consumed him. And when he went on national television, much to the surprise of very close advisors and would not seek re-election, the country was actually very shocked. But he, I respected he knew at this point as we just discussed it, his time was over and he needed to pass it to a new generation. With America's future under challenge right here at home, with our hopes and the world's hopes for peace and the balance every day, I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time to any personal partisan causes or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office, the presidency of your country. Accordingly, I shall not seek 
and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. But let men everywhere know, however, that a strong and a confident and a vigilant America stands ready tonight to seek an honorable peace and stands ready tonight to defend an honored cause, whatever the price, whatever the burden, whatever the sacrifice that duty may require. Thank you for listening. Good night, and God bless all of you. It was, it was sad. He truly was one of my absolute favorite presidents based on my own personal values. What Johnson was able to accomplish for America was phenomenal in many ways. A lot of things that I take for granted, a lot of things that I value, I can are directly related to what Johnson did for this country. He is responsible. Um, I don't want to make light of that. He is responsible for escalating um, and expanding the war in Vietnam and all the ruin that came about because of that. So, but uh, you know, you, you got to almost think of Johnson as pre-Vietnam, post-Vietnam. He did retire in 1972 when the LBJ library was dedicated that he did come out of retirement to speak, but he was obviously in failing health. Yeah, I think he died, correct me if I'm wrong, what, 1973? So he died before the Vietnam War concluded. Yes, a few years, uh, you know, when he never did see the end of the war and he did speak. And if you get a chance, you owe it to yourself to watch the video of his speech. But the one thing that moved me deeply to tears is the last thing he spoke in public during this speech to dedicate his library was, I promise that we shall overcome. Wow. That's so moving. I'm actually touched by you repeating his words. We shall. And I think if there's one lesson that can be taken from American history is that we do overcome. We overcame slavery. We overcame fascism. We overcame Jim Crow. Hopefully this period of American history, we can demonstrate that we will overcome a secondary push of fascism in our society. But that is only a hope. Nicholas, thank you for today discussing why LBJ matters. And I think he matters more than ever. He truly does. Thank you, Marie. This has been a fascinating and engrossing conversation. Thank you for joining us today on The White Bikini. I see a reflection of you and me. Reflections of the way life used to be.